Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Episode 9, Light in the Darkness, where we will be looking at chapters 20 through 21 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of suffering and grace. We would like to thank everybody for their patience. We know that we said that this episode would be out two weeks ago. As I'm sure you are aware by now, we lost the original audio for this episode. And it was kind of heartbreaking because we thought that it was really well done. And then it was just gone. So instead, we decided to bring you the delightful Fortunately the Milk, and we really hope that you enjoyed those episodes. Now it is time to get a little further into the sad parts of The Name of the Wind. We're recording this out of order, so episode 12's story is in our head and very fresh, more so than episode 8. Though we did go back and re-listen to it, We do hope that you enjoyed it, even if it wasn't cheerful. So as always, we'll start things off with a 45-second recap of the events of our section, followed by an in-depth discussion through our lens, as we see it illustrated in the book. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, read the main books, and the short stories associated with the Kingkiller Chronicle. Or that you just really don't care about spoilers. This podcast is full of spoilers. And if you're on episode 9, and you don't know this by now, well then that's on you. You have no room to complain now, do you? Also, just as a reminder, be kind. Be kind to us. Be kind to one another and be kind to the author of these books, because you do seem to love them well enough to listen to us talk about them for hours on end. And now it is time for our 45 second recap of this week. At this point, we will be inserting audio of Will's punishment that he earned by flubbing up week eight. Hey, mine is only 30 seconds because I like to challenge myself. And you failed. All right, and we will be inserting that audio now. So what's all this? It's your punishment. But why? Because you went over your self-imposed 30 seconds the last time that you did your recap. And we made a deal. So what is this going to entail? Well, first, some banana, and then some yogurt, provided the cat will actually let it go into the cup. Oh, he is looking so attentive right now. For those of you who don't know, Sokka is a yogurt fiend. Oh. 
because not for you. Must hide from cat. Luckily, he has no opposable thumbs. For the good of humanity. And then because you are a baby and you insisted, we've got some peanut butter. Maybe. This is enthralling. <laughs> At least for one of us it is. Hi, kitten. Nope, nope, you don't get to eat this. This is for Wills. And then a nice and generous helping of cherries. No. Ew. Oh, look, I can fit so many more in there. You don't need to. Yes, I do. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Mm, I'm nervous. No, no, no! What? What? Oh, it is so tormenting Sokka. Almost as much as it's tormenting me. Oh, no, it's... You sure you don't want just the cherry? Cherries is too much, ew. There's just a lot of those. Okay. Yeah. Fill up the liquid portion. While Sokka is just hoping that he'll get some of this. Better watch yourself, little kitten. All right. <laughs> What you interested in? Ah, the person who will be punished with the most tasty smoothie I could think to make. Why are your hands all shaky? Fear. All right, ham it up. Just keep doing that. Must I drink this? Yep, big sip. All right. I need one where you actually, actually put it in your mouth. I actually and then, did. And then you show it to me. What? Uh, okay, fine. <laughs> and Sokka has decided that the table is his favorite thing in the world right now and uh, has decided to end everything just a little short. So Will has now been punished again, and you get to meet the podcats more. And here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. And we're back. So Will, please get a timer ready. All right. You ready? Yes. And three, two, one, go. Seth, Jake, and Kvothe arrive in Tarbian, a city so large it cannot be traversed by foot in a single day. Kvothe runs from his memories and the farmers after they offer him a home. Kvothe then finds himself in an alleyway with three street kids who try to steal and then break his loot. He is injured and knocked unconscious. When he wakes up, he tries to find the farmers, but they're gone. We then find out that he will spend the next three years in Tarbian. The next chapter introduces us to Trappist. He is a stark contrast to Pike, the kid that broke Kvothe's loot. Kind and giving, even though he doesn't have much himself, Quoth almost considers Trappist's basement a sort of home. Almost. 35.88 seconds. This is why it's 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we are discussing our text through the lens of suffering and grace. And we see some pretty stark examples of both of these in this section. 
the first thing we get is Quoth's interactions with Seth and Jake, where they offer to let Quoth come live with them. And this is something that they do not because he asks, but because they can see that he needs it. And he almost takes them up on this. And I have a couple thoughts on this. So first thing, I noticed that one of the characters is Jake. Jake is the son in this case. And that's also the name of one of the locals of Noir who frequents the Waystone Inn. And I'm wondering if Quoth picked that location in part because of its proximity to this person who at one point showed him pure, unadulterated kindness. If that was maybe a motivating factor. You're wondering if they're the same person? I think that's possible. What we know is it wouldn't be that long. Between when Quoth encounters Jake as a kid and as an adult, Actually, no, it would be that long because he was 12 and the youngest Quoth could be now that he has owned the Waystone Inn for about a year and a half is probably about 20. And it would fit that there could be an adult Jake living in that town. So it's just a thing to think about. It would fit that there is an adult Jake now in the framing device timeline. We don't actually know where Seth or Jake lived. It's pretty ambiguous, and we still don't actually know where Noir really is either, for that matter. The other thing that I wanted to discuss is that this brings up sort of a what-if. This kind of calls to mind the old Marvel comics, what-if things where the Watcher would reveal all these alternate timelines where things happen just slightly differently. And there's one creature in all of the... Kingkiller-verse that has the ability to see these sorts of possible futures and has a habit of also trying to manipulate where they go. The Cathay. Yeah. It strikes me that the Cathay, or agents of the Cathay, may have conspired to keep Quoth from getting back in time to meet up with Seth and Jake and go home with them. Do you think in some ways that Pike, the street kid, may have something to do with the Cathay? Almost. So there's a couple elements to him that I think make him more than just a casual bully. Yeah, he's obviously cruel and self-centered and malicious, but he's also got an element like when he sees the loot, the way he looks at it, he's described as being almost transfixed by it. Like, he, on some level, knows that this is beautiful and of value over and above just its raw components, which is not normal for just your average street kid. And then there's also when Quoth torches Pike's hideout a few chapters later, one of the things that he finds is some pieces of sailcloth with charcoal drawings of a woman's face on them. Meaning that there's an element of Pike that really does appreciate beauty, that cares about something more than just day-to-day -day survival. He has treasures, he has things that he values, and perhaps even people that he values. And he, in many ways, is sort of like this dark mirror to Quoth and represents what Quoth kind of becomes during these sections. What Tarbian makes Quoth into. Yeah, exactly. The way that... Oftentimes, virtue is something of a luxury. 
It's very easy to be virtuous when times are good, and it's the measure of someone's character how well they maintain that virtue when times are not good. So going back a little bit to some of the text that happens at the beginning of the chapter, through our lens of suffering and grace, Quoth is clearly suffering. He wants so badly to hold on to this visceral memory of his father in the form of a lute. He panics when he can't find his lute. And it alternates between calling it his lute and calling it his father's lute. But as someone who carries things in their pockets that are these touchstones, I tend to carry little fidgets or rocks or something that I can play with with my hand in my pockets. And on occasion, if I think I've lost it, it's almost that moment like with Bilbo and the ring. Oh my goodness, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then finding it and having that relief. Quoth doesn't know where his father's loot is while he's helping unload the wagon with Seth and Jake. And then his stomach clenches and he spots it and then he clutches it to himself. This term of clutching his loot, it's a very deliberate word choice. It's almost a panic reaction. It's almost like he's clinging to a life raft in the middle of the ocean yeah, the clutching, clinging element. It's a lifeline of sorts that he's desperate to hold on to. He pushes away memories. He's trying to shove them through the doors of forgetting. But they're insidious. And Seth offers him a moment of grace. Offers him a home. He says, if you come back here, we will wait for you until sundown. You can come home with us. And it's heartbreaking. So Tarbian is bigger than any town that he's really had a chance to experience up until this point. It's so big you can't just walk across it in a day. It's almost a maze. Very easy to get lost in. And everybody there is out for themselves. It's not a warm and welcoming place by any stretch of the imagination. The central mood that I see in Tarbian is desperation. Even amongst the people who are supposedly wealthy and well-to-do in the rich parts of town, they're very keen to keep what they have. They're afraid to lose anything. And that seems to permeate the entire city. And it leads to a lot of casual cruelty. Which we run into in the form of Pike first. Pike is a mean welcome to the big city. When Quoth first encounters Pike, he initially gets shaken down, and Pike, being the casual bully that he is, can't conceive of a world where Quoth could actually own the loot. It has to have been something that he's stolen, and that means that it's just as much Pike's property as anybody else's. That Pike has every right to it, and because he's bigger, he can just take it. Pike lives in a world where only the strong matter, and that seems to be his worldview. You can see how the city around him has shaped that. Quoth, at this point, seems a little naive, thinking that he can just get out of this situation either by imploring kindness from this person who does not have any to give him, who himself has been suffering. 
and wants only to inflict that suffering back onto other people. I can't remember when you said this, if it's something that you said in later pods or previous pods, but you said, hurt people hurt people. Pike is a street kid. He doesn't have a home. He is suffering just as much. And in the instances where we see that he has been humanized later on, there's implication of a lost mother, a lost family. It's reminding us that Kvothe is not alone in all of his suffering. Even as Kvothe sees other people as parts of his story, those other people have their own story. Yeah, we just see a tip of the iceberg here. I think there's more depth to what's going on than Kvothe maybe sees himself, but he doesn't spend too much time looking harder when he has the chance. And so while Kvothe and Pike are having their struggle, Pike's two sidekicks are having a theological debate about whether it's appropriate to say Telu's name in vain and having crude discussions with one another. There's a bit of an implication here that the street kids, they look down on their peers, the other kids who are also without a home, should those kids choose to seek help from whatever avenue they can. In this case, there is derision aimed at the one kid that slept in the church, saying that he picks up religion like other people pick up fleas. They're looking down on him for asking for help or accepting help from people who are freely giving it or mostly freely giving it. There's implications that the Church of Telu doesn't necessarily give everything out for free, but the things that they are requesting back are not money. When people are in a hard spot, it's really difficult to ask others for help, to ask people who are much better off for help. It's a difficult spot to be in, and I know that when I had very little money to my name, and I was very close to homelessness, I didn't want to apply for food stamps, because in my mind, I wasn't worthy of getting those. I was too prideful. I had a job. I had a house to go back to, even if it was tenuous that I would be able to stay there. I didn't think that I was the person who was meant to be the recipient of aid. And I think that a lot of people are like that. People who are in desperate need, who are too prideful to look for or seek out help. And I think that in some cases, you can't do that for yourself, but you can do it for your family. But there's also societal pressures not to appear like you need the help. There's a lot of, you're not trying hard enough. A lot of societal pressure that tells you you have to build yourself up, that you have to pick up the pieces and just barrel forward, and that asking for help is somehow bad or wrong or giving up. And not only that, for the people who do accept the help, if they don't look sufficiently destitute while taking advantage of that, many people will unfairly judge them. Like, people will judge you if you've got a smartphone and you're using food stamps, never mind the fact that there are affordable smartphone options. You could have gotten one for very cheap, you know, from a, from a friend or something like that. 
and it's pretty much a requirement now to partake in society. But if you look like you have means of any kind and you're using food stamps, people will think of you as being wasteful. Now, forgive me, I don't know if I've talked about this before in a different pod or not, but there's the assumption that if you give to charity, that the person receiving said charity should be grateful for exactly what was given to them. I saw something recently about how people were offended when they saw recipients of a giving tree taking those things that they received back to Walmart. You don't know if the jacket that they got was something that didn't fit their child. You don't know if they have a dietary restriction and they had to exchange the food that was given. You don't know if the toys that were given to their children are being exchanged so that they can have diapers. Yes, it is important for kids to have enriching toys and feel like they have not been forgotten, but it's also important for them to eat. Sometimes survival for other people looks different than what you think it should be. Yeah, I'm reminded of something that I heard on another podcast that I listened to, Judge John Hodgman, where John Hodgman, the comedian and writer, says, when someone says they need help, they need what they need, not what you think you can give. In those situations, the person who is exchanging the stuff at Walmart for cash they may need that because they need food on the table or to pay the electricity bill or what have you. We don't know their actual circumstances and while it may have made them feel good to have someone think about them for the non-essential things. And they also may feel absolutely terrible for having to return an item that was given lovingly. Yeah. I would have to imagine that anyone who is making the decision to do that return is not doing so lightly or cavalierly. And even if some people are, Law of Averages says that there's a possibility that those returns are for reasons that maybe we don't agree with. The people who are returning things in order to exchange them for food or better fitting clothing or shoes, or something else that is an essential. Why punish them for the very few people who are taking advantage of the charity? Back to our story. This represents a part of Kvothe being destroyed, the last of his childhood, the last of his amazing, secure, safe memories being destroyed dramatically with the sound of a broken lute. Quoth is also numb. The lute is the one thing that's been making him feel. And now it's gone. It's a traumatic event for him. Then to add insult to injury, Pike then blames Quoth for the destruction of the lute. Again with Pike feeling that he can lay a claim to the lute, and then gaslighting Quoth telling him that the destruction of one of the last precious items that he has is his own fault. 
in the state that Foth is in, that's the last thing that he needs to hear. I think it's more devastating than any of his physical injuries. It reopens a central wound in Kvothe that I think never really heals. It makes him callous and I'd say even a little bit cruel as we see in upcoming chapters. Before we get too far, I do want to point out a turn of phrase that kind of just sticks in my head. The chapter name and a part of a sentence that is in the book now is bloody hands into stinging fists. That language is reminiscent of the Ketan, which is a martial art practiced by the Adim that we will see near the end of the wise man's fear. It harkens back to Quoth the narrator is still the whole person that was created out of his time traveling with his troop with the influence of Tarbian and of Emre and the university. Quoth as the narrator, as the person in our framing device, is built from all of these pieces, including his time in Severin, his time in Ademre. I also thought that there might be some reference here to the Amir who are known for their red hands, bloody hands. Bloody-handed Amir. Exactly. There might be. Might be an illusion. In the end, Kvoth is saved by someone calling out that they are with the city watch. Said person then proceeds to rob Kvoth of all of his money, which isn't very much, and we get the beginning of the ledger. The contents of the sack that he was carrying were lying on the ground. It was a half a ball of string, a small dull knife, rhetoric and logic, and the remainder of his bread. As we go forward, Kvoth will morph this into a ledger of money that he has. We've mentioned this before, but seriously, how does he know how much money he had at any given point? We know it's at least five years later. He kind of reminds me of someone playing an old school 90s RPG where you've got this kind of absurdist inventory screen that you're constantly flipping into because you have to pick up everything that you can and it will eventually be the answer to a puzzle later on. And so that piece of string is key to defeating the scorpion because the scorpion will be distracted by it so you can run by. Maybe Quoth is just looking at his inventory constantly to see, can I use this? Can I use this? Can I use this? <laughs> Maybe. If anyone has played the old school King's Quest games, you know what I'm talking about. That leaves scars that meant that every broom that you saw in Skyrim just went into your inventory. Yes, I could pick it up, therefore it was useful. <laughs> they wouldn't have made it pick upable if, if it wasn't useful. At this point, Quoth is suffering from physical wounds. He is suffering from emotional trauma. He's lost and hungry. And he sees the sky is purpling. And he thinks, I do want to be saved. I do want to go home with Seth and Jake. I want to feel safe and warm and loved again. And to just twist the knife when he finally gets back to the square. They're gone. He tries to curl up in the lee of the bookshop where they had parked and gets a kicking for his trouble because the shopkeeper doesn't want anyone who looks like they don't have anything around there to scare off his customers. 
And the tragedy of this is like, for me, and for many of our friends, a bookshop is one of the safest and most welcoming places. Um, a bookshop should be a place where people are welcome, regardless of what their story might be. Capitalism. That's all I have to say on that. It runs deep in Tarbian and in our society. Yeah, Tarbian is a cruel mirror of our own society, and it includes many of the worst parts of modern cities. And again, we get into this cruel what-if where there's an alternate universe where Kvothe grew up in a safe and loving home, and we don't know if he would ever have left to go on adventures, or if he did, what kind of adventures he would have. Or if he would ever resolve his story with the Chandrian. He might, but I think he might go about it in a far different way. More of an acceptance rather than being vengeful. I think that he would cause a lot less collateral damage along the way. I don't think it would be so single-minded and all-consuming. Now we get to the part of the section where we can examine a little more of the grace. So after a couple months, Kvothe happens to see a couple kids that he knows running excitedly. At first he thinks maybe there's a hanging going on. Which is a macabre and terrible thing that that would be his entertainment at this point. Again, this shows how Kvothe has been made callous by his surroundings. There's sort of a casual cruelty that he's come to accept as the natural order of things. So he follows the kids to see what's up. Then he sees them coming back with bread. The kids tell him, hey, go check out in the basement over there. There's still some left. And at this point, we get introduced to one of your favorite characters. I absolutely love Trappus. Trappus is a monk, probably Talon, in some fashion, who is acting as essentially a Mother Teresa figure for the lost and forgotten kids of Tarbian. He asks nothing from the kids save that they help the other people that he's caring for. He says, if I've got bread, you're welcome to have some. You're welcome to have as much water as you like, because he has access to clean water from the pump. Most of his charges are kids who, for instance, they have cerebral palsy, or they've gone mad with a fever, abandoned babies. These are kids that have no voice of their own, sometimes even literal. But Trappist's response to them, I think, is really powerful. He listens to them in a way that most people simply don't. So, for instance, one of the kids, Tanny, can only make a few sounds here and there. And Trappist listens to him and takes him seriously, treats him as a person whose words have meaning. And whose life has meaning. Right. It's an intrinsic value. Tanny has value because he's alive. Tanny has value by virtue of being who he is, regardless of his own challenges. And Trappist doesn't just pity him. Trappist respects him and cares for him. He knows that Tanny has needs and needs to be understood and needs to be treated with dignity. He gave us children what help he could. We did whatever he asked. And when there wasn't any food, we could always have a drink of water, a tired smile, 
and someone who looked at us as if we were human and not animals in rags. That's a really powerful thing. When you look at the challenges of poverty, like in our own society, one of the biggest struggles that people deal with is just to be seen, just to be acknowledged as someone with value. I would say that anyone of lesser privilege feels that. We, as a society, tend to ignore the people who need the most. We tend to ignore the people who make us feel uncomfortable. If we can't understand someone, if we can't contemplate the space that another person is in, if we look at someone and fear that we could become that, many of us avoid those people. And when we do think about people with less privilege, oftentimes it's very easy to just put them into the category of pitiful or, or whatever boxes or labels we feel apply to them, rather than actually imagining them as a whole person with a rich interior life. We think of people who go to food banks as somehow lesser than people who can afford to go to grocery stores. I've worked at food banks as a volunteer. I've met some of the most wonderful people. A lot of the people who don't have things to give are the most generous with what they have. And Trappist falls into that category. He doesn't have a lot, and what he has, he devotes to caring for these forgotten children. He's got problems of his own. As Quoth notes, he's got swollen feet from walking barefoot on this cold, wet floor all day. And you get the sense that even if someone were to give him a pair of shoes, he would probably either give them to someone else that he thought needed them more, or sell them and use the proceeds to take care of his charges. In fact, later on, Quoth does bring him a pair of shoes. And it is my assumption that he probably didn't keep them, but not out of a sense of being ungrateful, because I'm sure that Trappist was grateful, but out of a sense that others needed more than he did. Trappist, despite everything, is the most pure beacon of hope in this entire story. And he never once treats Kvoth as anything different. It doesn't matter if Kvoth is dressed in rags and half-starved, or if Kvoth is coming back and sharing what he has. When Kvoth leaves Tarbian, one of the last things he does is go down to Trappist's basement and decides to share what he has. But because he's clean and looks like he has money, some of the other street kids wind up treating him differently. But Trappist sees Kvothe. Trappist is unusually perceptive. I think part of it is because he sees the value in everyone that goes beyond just their physical appearance. He loves every one of the people that needs his help. He recognizes that. And in many ways, I think having Trappist as sort of a safe refuge for Kvothe is the thing that keeps him from completely becoming like Pike. While certainly Quoth still has his dark side, there's no erasing that. Trappist represents sort of that 
lifeline of how to be a better person regardless of circumstance. And like I was saying, it's easy to be virtuous when you aren't in a desperate strait. And it's the truly good people who are able to maintain their generosity even when things are difficult. And I think that's part of what speaks to Trappist's strength of character. And I think now is probably a good time for us to move on to the Fernemos. It's pretty obvious who our Fernemos of the week is by a country mile. It's Trappist. He is just so radically accepting and radically generous. And radically loving. Yeah. The way he treats everyone. It's the kind of virtue that people should be aspiring to. He uses everything he has to help other people. He doesn't really complain about his own ailments. He doesn't worry about his own wealth or what have you. He only worries about taking care of the people in front of him. And generally it's the children in front of him. Oh, and he puts himself in a position so that he sees the people who are suffering. He deliberately goes to them. He is responsive to them and he listens to them. He gives them what they actually need and not what he thinks he wants to give. That's a really powerful thing. He is definitely somebody to aspire to. And so now that we've discussed our Fronimos of the week, now it's time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and learn an interesting fact of the week. This week it's your turn, Phoenix. Interest me. Will do. I could cheat. I could give you the same interesting fact that I gave you on our first recording, but I don't think I will. I will probably include those in the show notes, so if anyone wants to know, I was very close to having to have another raspberry, except Will accepted my third interesting fact. So let's see what happens this time. Do you like hearing yourself when you listen to our podcast back? No, not at all. Now, why is that? Just sounds wrong, that's all. It turns out you're not alone. Most people dislike hearing their own voice back. And that's because to them, it doesn't actually sound like themselves. And there's a reason for that. When you hear yourself, you're hearing your own voice conducted through all of the fleshy bits and bone and everything that's in your skull. Your voice sounds distinctly different to your ears from the inside than it does from the outside. And when you're hearing it in a recording, what you've heard is your voice coming out of your mouth and conducting through air, much like you hear everything else. Your bones in your face and all of your soft tissues transmit lower tones better than they do higher tones. So most of us think that our voices are lower than they actually are. Inside of our own heads, our voices have a richer tone and there is also more resonance. So that all being said, when participants in a 2013 study heard their own voice recordings mixed in with a series of other people's, all saying the numbers 1 through 10, they ranked their own voice as being more attractive on average than others did, provided that they didn't know that that was their voice. On a scale of 1 through 7, 7 being most beautiful, participants ranked their own voices an average of 4.7, where others ranked them at an average of 3.6. 
So there are a couple things in there that I actually thought was interesting. One, the depths of human narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) Why, yes, I do think I am attractive. So there's that. But also, yeah, it does actually track. That actually explains a lot. I always think my voice is a lot deeper than it is. So yeah, you have interested me. Thank you. And for everybody listening, I will include the three that I originally recorded with the first recording of episode nine that is lost to the ether and a lot of money that we do not want to pay to get the audio back. Sorry. And with that, it's time for us to share our seven words. It's my turn to find seven words in the book. And this week I have, you've helped so much, I'll be fine. And that was something that both said to Seth and Jake. When they offered him a new home, they offered to take him back with them. Both not knowing what to do with that generosity. With that grace. Feeling like he ought to be self-sufficient, that he ought to be able to take care of himself, that he ought to be able to live without the kindness and generosity that others want to show him. It just really spoke to me, and it's sort of both pride and his ego getting in the way of him taking up something that would have probably helped him out quite a bit. I'm not even sure if pride and ego are at play specifically here. In general, people have a hard time accepting freely given aid, freely given help. We feel like we don't deserve it, and I think that both is suffering from survivor's guilt, hardcore. It'd be hard not to, after what he's been through. I think that those words are hard to take in when we have recently read the rest of his struggles in Tarbian, because they are ultimately not right. They are ultimately not true. It's tragic. And you have seven words from life? I do. So where we live, there's a lot of wild animal noises. We've heard owls. We regularly hear frogs. We have also heard coyotes yipping. And as you may know, we have two little podcats in the form of Sokka and Leela. Sokka being our younger cat, also our kind of talky cat. And one morning, as Will was getting ready for work, we heard a lot of howling and yipping. And Sokka was just going around the house with his tail tucked between his legs and looking kind of nervous. And he looks up at Will and he just goes, meow, wow. And Will looked down and goes, don't worry, the coyotes can't get you. And Sokka looks at Will and just goes, meow, wow. Like, really? You sure? (laughs) The way that he did it was just, I don't believe you. Please save me from the coyotes. And he just kind of glommed onto you. It was adorable. Sokka, in a lot of ways, can be very cute, but very annoying. But that one was just cute. And you'll get to hear the words that I originally had planned to put in this episode before that instance happened. You'll get to hear those words in episode 11. But I had to use, don't worry, the coyotes can't get you. 
It's also been a great way for me to sort of tease Sokka that the coyotes are attracted to the sound of troublesome kittens. I'm sure he understands. Anyway. With that, we come to the end of our episode. Thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss Chapter 22 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of seasonal generosity. We would like to extend a huge thank you to Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Hitting the record button. Totally worth it. That would just be the ultimate cruel irony. It would be terrible considering that we lost the audio for the first time we did this. <laughs> Go through the entire thing and just, oh, I didn't hit record. Go again. It's like if you had to restart 1917 every time someone flubbed a line. <laughs> the entire movie. Yeah. Going again.